Father, as we consider these words, we ask that you would speak to our hearts through them. Lord, you have promised blessings through what has been termed the foolishness of preaching. We pray, Lord, that those blessings may be ours this morning. We pray, Father, that you would direct our hearts, direct our thoughts. Let us feed on your truth and let us grow together in grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really hard to stop, isn't it? I know you're thinking about what does you mean? What is it? It's hard to stop doing. It's hard to stop thinking about all the essential and all the peripheral things of this world and this life and to concentrate on what God has to say. As you know, what he has to say is of the greatest importance. And it has a tremendous impact on all those other essential and and peripheral matters. But it's just hard. It's hard to shut down all the noise and all distraction and concentrate. And just think about what God is saying. What God in his word has to say. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, we have the power of his spirit to bring the word to our hearts and to bring it to our minds. And we look to God, praying as David did in Psalm 119 in verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. And that's really the prayer that we need to have when we're going to stop and try to think about what God is saying to us in his word. There's so much to be found here, so much to be gained, so much to profit from, and yet it's hard to stop and to bear down and to think about it and to dwell on it. But let's try to, young and old this morning, Because this is the word that in its perfection revives the soul. In its surety makes wise the simple. In its righteous counsel rejoices the heart. And in its purity enlightens the eyes. So let's begin by taking a look again at the opening of this section of Hebrews. That is the first few verses of chapter 12. It's probably familiar to you by now, but just look at it one more time and sort of stop, try to put everything else aside and just listen again to what's being said. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also... Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Since the creation, this section is teaching us, Since the creation, there has been an endless cloud or crowd of witnesses of what it means to live godly in Christ Jesus. Some of these witnesses have been positive, others have been negative. But they can be found in every age, under all manner of circumstances, and every one of you, who makes a genuine profession of Jesus Christ right now, are a part of that witness, that cloud of witnesses. You, by your profession of faith, by your coming to Christ, you've joined that crowd, that cloud of witnesses. 
It's a long one. It goes way back to the very beginning. But you've taken your place now among those witnesses. And being in this crowd or cloud, you have certain instructions. And look back at those verses and you'll see those instructions. They're pretty simple. Number one, lay aside every weight of sin. Number two, run with endurance. Number three, look to Jesus. Pretty simple set of instructions. Lay aside every sin, run with endurance, and look to Jesus. It isn't hard, and it doesn't take long to make a quick assessment based on those three things. So again, just stop for a moment. How is it with you and sin in your life? How is it with you and sin? How is your race going? How are you enduring? Your race to by all means possible attain to the resurrection from the dead. You remember how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 12, he said, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How's that going for you? How are you doing in that race? How are you enduring? How are you holding up? Are you successfully shedding off sin? Are you living not by sight, but by faith? And lastly, where are your eyes fixed? Are you looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith? Have we got our eyes on him like something afar off that you're concentrating on because you don't want to miss it? You can maybe think of it this way. You, you go to a game with the intention of sitting with a friend. And you survey the whole crowd. And you're looking for that face of that friend of yours. And once you find it, you start making your way towards them. Always keeping them in view. So that as you're making your way through the crowd, you're, you're going to end up where they are. That's what having your eyes fixed on Jesus is about having them fixed on him and you're making your way through this life and your whole purpose is to get there and to be with him. Is that how your eyes, your attention is fixed on Christ? Those are the simple instructions given here. Be shedding sin, run with endurance, and keep your eyes fixed on Christ. If you are throwing off sin, if you are living by faith when the path runs either uphill or, or downhill, and if you have your eyes ultimately fixed on Jesus, then praise God. Praise God. Praise God that he's working that in your life. Just remember, with that accomplishment, that Paul considered himself, despite his efforts to run the race, to be the least of all apostles. And he said in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. That's the evidence. Yes, I'm shedding sin, I'm running with endurance, and I have my eyes fixed on Jesus. But that is the evidence that God's grace in me has not been given in vain. If on the other hand, you're struggling with challenges. You're enduring, but you're confronted with difficult things and real challenges. You're struggling under those challenges. Remember that your God, according to this passage in verse 6, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So let that encourage you. Let that strengthen you. Let that build you up as you struggle. 
If you see a brother or a sister struggling, growing weak or buckling under the weight of life, as, as uh, uh, Mr. Batista said, pointed out last week, do what you can to lift him or her up and to straighten them out and to strengthen them and to be, sure, be sure to be making straight paths for your own feet. In this chapter again, chapter 12, we find this instruction in beginning in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So if you're being challenged yourself, remember God disciplines every child that he loves. And if you see someone else struggling, come to their help, come to their aid. That's a part of running well yourself. And with this list of things that we've just read comes the opportunity for another assessment. You have a list of things that Christians dwell on and pursue. And what are they here? Endure the Lord's discipline by faith like a child of God. Help struggling brethren. Make straight paths for your feet. Strive for peace. Strive for holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And again, you can just go back and say, well, how am I doing with these things? Am I enduring the discipline of the Lord by faith like a child of God? Am I helping struggling brethren? Am I being there to help them and encourage them? Am I praying for them? Am I making straight paths for my own feet? Am I striving for peace? Am I striving for holiness? And am I doing everything I can to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? All of that makes sense to the Christian. And depending on where you are in, in your where you are spiritually, it all plays some part in your life. And hopefully it plays an essential part in your life. But why? Let's stop for a minute again and say, okay, well, here's the way I can analyze all this. I can look at this. I can judge my life. I can see how I'm living for Christ. But why should I do this? The Lord, beloved, doesn't treat you and me like mindless drones or cold mechanical robots driven by the impulse of some sterile coating. He doesn't do that. When he sets before us things like this, he does it in a way that, that, that teaches us, that instructs us, that encourages us. Why should we keep the witness in mind? Why should, why should I keep my witness in mind? Why should I keep my place among this great cloud of witnesses in mind? Along with all the other things mentioned here. Well, the answer is given to you here, first of all, negatively. There are many good reasons. But just consider the one set down here in this context. And it begins negatively. You should be shedding sin running the the race with endurance and keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus because you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. The one that blazed with fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now you have come to Mount Zion. And that's why. But we want to pause for a minute and think about, well, what is this thing we have not come to that is referenced here? In the greater context 
of all that we have in this passage, all that we've been looking at since we really began with Hebrews chapter 11, all those witnesses of faith exercised in in all those varying circumstances, from understanding God's work of creation by faith to all the examples set forth by Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all the rest. This is how God, what we've just read here, this is how God chose to make himself known to them in their time. He chose to make himself known in that mountain that could not be touched, but you could come near and touch because it was physical. And in the smoke and the fire and the terror and the gloom on the height of that mountain. He was, in presenting himself in that way, showing himself to be a God of holiness, a God of omniscience, a God of omnipotence, a God exacting justice, in whose eyes they sought by faith to find grace and mercy through a promised Redeemer. Now, let's just uh, have our own little mountain here. Uh, Let's just think of that for a moment. Here's this mountain. It's full of smoke. It's full of gloom. It's full of lightning. The ground is actually shaking. The voice of the Lord is such that the men and women and children are saying, no, no, don't, we can't hear that anymore. We can't stand that. And the Lord is revealing himself in his glory as the living God and in his righteousness and in his holiness. And all of these who lived by faith had to be able to see through all of that to a Redeemer. They had to be able to see through all that gloom and all that smoke and all that terror to the mercy of God and to put their trust and faith in that mercy, in that goodness of God that they could see beyond all of that that was fearsome. But you, beloved, you have come to seek and to find the mercy and the love of God in a different age. You have come in the age of grace. They came trembling to a mountain, quaking under the awesome, burning righteousness of God on high. And what did they find? They found grace and justification by faith alone, just like you did. But it was before them in this way. And you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and an innumerable angels, uh, uh, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Perhaps I can say it this way, and it'll help you to understand what I'm saying. They had to look beyond the terror of the law to find some hope of grace. But you and I need only to look to the cross. They had to look beyond the terror. All you and I have to do is look beyond the cross. Both of these, the cross and the mountain, put on display the majesty and the glory of God. But as Calvin says, when considered in themselves, they both were magnificent and truly celestial. But when we come to the kingdom of Christ... The things which God exhibits to us are far above all the heavens. Think about it. When you came to Christ, 
believing that Jesus died for your sins. You came to Zion and into the company of innumerable angels celebrating. In festal glory they were. Rejoicing in in your repentance and your coming to Christ. Think about that in contrast to standing before that mountain there in Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. And before that terror of the Lord. And hoping and praying that God's mercy would extend to you. Despite his righteousness. There's just a contrast in the approach. The end is the same. It's justification by faith. But the way God displayed himself is different in that way. The things of the Lord excel in beauty and wonder. And notice, as he points out, everything in verses 18 through 21 was manifested in earthly ways. While everything in verses 22 through 24 is spiritual in its beauty. You see the contrast there. You look at the description uh, that we find there in verses 18 through 21, and it carries us back to Exodus chapter 19, the chapter before the Ten Commandments are given. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Clearly, this was all designed to present to God's people the terrors of the law. Even a dumb beast would not be judged worthy and would be put to death for drawing too near. And those who lived by faith, beloved, all those people in chapter 11 that you read about who lived by faith, they had to look beyond this frightful sight for the grace of God. It couldn't be found in any hope of keeping the law. 
Who could stand before such a judge? Who could stand in the presence of the living God? Who could keep that law perfectly? None could. So grace had to be found beyond that. Good says, The law was utterly unable by itself and by strict observance of the rights thereof to do that which was needful to be done, namely to make the observers perfect. They were looking for mercy. And it's King David who so beautifully sets before us the character of that mercy after his sin with Bathsheba. When David writes that great hymn of repentance, he begins it this way in Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's where they had to look for it, beloved, in the steadfast love of the Lord. David had nothing to offer. David couldn't present anything to the Lord. He was a man who, who knew the Lord, who had a heart after God's own heart, and yet he sinned so evilly. And what was he going to say now in the presence of the Lord? How was he going to find forgiveness for that sin? There was only one way. And that was to put his trust and faith in the steadfast love of the Lord, that he would have mercy on him. He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I can't do anything to wash them away. I can't do anything to make them disappear. But Lord, you can. You can wash them away. You can blot out my transgressions. You can wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And that's the kind of faith that they had to exercise in the face of this manifestation of the righteousness and the holiness of God and the demands of his righteous law. David said, against you and against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And you're justified when you condemn me. So Lord, please have mercy on me because I have no other hope than your steadfast love and your mercy. And on the basis of that faith, David was justified. Now let's go back and uh, look for just a moment at the description given us briefly here. Because it's an expression of the state under which everyone who hopes to be saved by their works, or his works, or her works, stands before God. In verse 18 it says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest. Mount Mount Sinai was a physical place. But when it was touched by God, it was fearfully impacted. Psalm 68 verse 8 says, The earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, This is the second clause in which he shows that the law was very different from the gospel. For when it was promulgated, there was nothing but terrors on every side. The terrors spoken of here were the result of God presenting himself to his people and to the world as the judge of all mankind, offended with us. And when he does, says Dixon, we are filled with confusion and perplexity. And fire represented by blackness and darkness and tempest. It's all that turmoil in us. Where do we turn? What do we do here? This is the law of God. This is the God to whom we have to answer. Who can answer to this God? What do we do? Where do we go? That's the turmoil, all all that was a part of it. And the only place they could go was beyond it to the grace of God. There's this trumpet in verse 19. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. It was not that they didn't want to know what he said, but they couldn't stand to hear it from him. The the sound of his presence was more than they could bear to hear. It reminded them that there was no escape from his justice. 
I, I don't know a good way to express this, but maybe this illustration fits. I've used it before. Sometimes I've, when I was a parent, I'm still a parent, but when I was raising children, sorry, let me correct that. When I was raising children, one of the children would come and say, Dad, so-and-so's doing this. And I'd say, go tell them to stop. And then I'd keep doing what I was doing. And then they'd come back and say, Dad, they're not stopping. So then I have to put everything down, stop what I'm doing, go find them. And then when I walk in the room, even before I say, stop it, they're stopping. (laughs) Because Dad's there. And now it's not just a voice coming to them. It's his presence in the room, and it would immediately get a reaction. Think about that in this context. This is the presence of God. He's not saying from far away, you shall not commit adultery. He is right there on the mountain, sounding forth his word, you shall not commit adultery. And when those words are coming forth, it's like a trumpet. The whole ground is shaking under the presence of them being there. And you can imagine the terror that that strike struck into the hearts of the people who were there. This isn't a message coming to us from someone. This is God speaking to us with his presence right there. A thousand, a million times more imposing than anything that happens between fathers and their children here on earth. And that word was being given to them. They said, no, we can't hear it anymore coming directly from him because there's no place to hide. There's no place to go. There's no excuse to give. We can't stand it. So Moses, you go hear it and then come and tell us what he said because we can't stand to hear this. And those who live by faith had to see through that to the grace of God to the love of God and throw themselves wholly on his mercy like David did. David heard the terror of that command. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. And he did both. He lied. He stole. He dishonored the name of God. He worshipped himself rather than his God. And all of that was there, pressing down upon his heart. And the only answer he had under the circumstances was to say, Lord, please blot out my transgressions. Lord, have mercy on me for nothing else but your own goodness and your own steadfast love. The people said to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in verse 25, again verse 25, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we will die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Every commandment of the Lord says to the sinner, this is what you should not have done. This is what you should not have left undone. Therefore, you yourself are done. It was terrifying. They couldn't endure the order that was given. And Moses himself trembled with fear. Even the poor beasts were subject to the holiness of this mountain with God on it. If by chance an innocent beast approached the commanded, he commanded it to be killed. How much heavier punishment awaited sinners who were conscious of their guilt, nay, and who knew themselves to be condemned to eternal death by the law, says Calvin. Now this testimony regarding Moses' terror here, is one that's generated a good bit of discussion, in part because there's not a direct quote that we can reference anywhere in Scripture where Moses says this. But I believe the point's to be taken in the contrast of all that we're told of Moses. He was the meekest of men. He was wise. 
Moses was loyal. Moses was worshipful. Moses was obedient. And Moses was humble. And yet still, before the righteous manifestation of God on this mountain, he trembled and was fearful. Because he knew none of that could justify him in the eyes of God. When God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, we're told that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, all of those of that time sought escape from this judgment by faith. And the endurance of their faith demonstrated that they were freed from the terrors of the law by that faith. So the terror of the law was there, but they lived by faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is telling you. They lived by faith under the terrors of the law. Paul, speaking of Abraham, says this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then of David, uh, he adds this in Romans uh, chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom the God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. By what? By grace. Now what is the point? Why does this house reflect on the why? This being true, beloved, that that's what they experienced. See to it that you, who came to such a different mountain through Christ, be sure that you have gained it by faith. Because through faith, we come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. There's not time to flesh all this out this morning, but let me just make a brief contrast for you. Consider the contrast here between that Mount Sinai and Mount Zion to which you've come through Christ. The top of Mount Sinai was bleak. It was a bare mountain. The mountain you've come to in Christ is a mountain on which stands a beautiful city. That mountain was in the wilderness of Sinai. The mountain you've come to is in heaven. That mountain blazed with fire, gloom, darkness, and a tempest. You've joined a mountain, and we can't emphasize this enough, full of innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're celebrating. They're having a party. They're rejoicing. It's in that context. They came to the sound of a terrifying trumpet. You have heard the voice of Jesus. Their blood was justly required of them for violation of the law. Christ's blood is sprinkled on you for justification. So what is the application here? We'll just stop again. And consider this. If your mind's wandering, stop it and start over. Remember what we observed at the beginning? Being in this crowd, in this cloud of witnesses, having come with all the saints to Mount Zion, you still have instructions. And the instructions are shed sin, run with endurance. Look to Jesus. Same instructions are still there. And think of it this way. How does someone who is an heir of heaven, who is enrolled there, who stands with angels and with men and women who are among the firstborn, just souls made righteous, who stands with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, carry him or herself at home. 
How do you carry yourself at home? Knowing that this is what you've come to. How do you interact with your spouse? How do you interact with your parents? How do you interact with your children? How do you live together having come to this mountain? Here you are with the the festal angels. How do you live together among the festal angels? How do you conduct yourself at school? How do you approach your studies as a student? Not coming to Mount Sinai with the terrors and so on, but having come to God through the cross and come to this place where you're part of this cloud of witnesses of what it means to live by faith in the age of grace. How do you conduct yourself among your brothers and sisters in the church? and the church at large, among friends, among your enemies? How do you live among your enemies having come to this mountain? Shedding sin in relationship to one's spouse or one's parents or even our siblings and so on seems a given, doesn't it? we shouldn't need to be challenged to this. It's only appropriate that if I'm doing something like that, I should, I should leave it now. And why? Well, because I've come to this mountain, and these things are mine. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, In the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter puts it even more simply in 1 Peter 1.15. As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. After all, you've come to this beautiful place. Running with endurance through trials and difficulties of a divinely disciplined life. How should you do that coming to this mountain? Not to Sinai, but to Zion. Enduring faith, beloved, is the gift of God. People tend to think that what is difficult for them is easy for everybody else. But that's a false illusion. You hear it when people are under certain life challenges and when they're encouraged to endure by faith. And to endure what's set before them. And they say often to themselves, and sometimes out loud, well, that's easy for you to say. If you were going through what I was going through, you would have a different story to tell. It's easy for you to say, as if I'm the only one who's ever really had to endure anything. We know that's foolishness. Stop and think for a moment. We don't really think that. Do you really think that for some people it's really easy to endure uh, life's trials by faith? Do you really think that? Think it was easy for Moses? Boy, if I had been there, it would have been a lot harder for me than it was for Moses. Because Moses was Moses and I'm just me. Do you really think that? Now, everything that Moses endured, he endured by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And it's the same for all of us, beloved. It's from the Lord that they drew their strength, their patience, their joy, their, con- their confidence, or any other spiritual strength. It's true, some are more stoic and others more positively minded. But the exercise of those things in times of trouble do not indicate endurance by faith, beloved. Go back and pick any character in chapter 11 of this epistle and ask yourself, 
Did he or she endure just because they had a positive attitude? Abraham was ready to make that sacrifice of Isaac because he had a positive attitude. How many of you think that's true? I hope nobody's raising their hand. Paul, talking about the frailty of life, said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And lastly, I appreciate your patience, having our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus as you maneuver through life and and all your various duties and responsibilities in service to him. How should people have come to this mountain? Not Zion. I mean, not Sinai, excuse me, but Zion. How should they have, how should we have our eyes fixed on Jesus? You remember the glory of Emmanuel's land, right? We sing it often enough. The bride eyes not her garment, it says, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Is that just something for the future? Or is that something for right now for you who believe? What is your eye fixed on? Is it fixed on the lamb? When I'm struggling with the issues of this life, whatever they prove to be, beloved, I need to have my eyes fixed on him who loved him and gave himself for me. That's where my vision has to be fixed or I'm not going to be able to endure those things. It's almost become cliched, but when did Peter begin to sink into the troubled sea? Wasn't it when he removed his eyes from the Savior? When Paul wants to encourage couples in marriage, where does he tell them to look? Do you remember? In Ephesians chapter 5, he says there in verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, very good, so also wives should submit to their own husbands. Where is he telling you wives to look? Where is he telling you to have your eyes fixed? To Christ, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Your husbands are trying to figure out how to love your wives. Where are you going to find out how to do that? By having your eyes fixed on Christ. Do you see it? Fixed on him. And that's just one context in which we're reminded to have our eyes on him. But the point is, having our eyes fixed on him through all of life, which is appropriate for those who have come to Mount Zion, is the way of blessing. David says in Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Look to him, beloved. We're, we've, we've, we've come to this beautiful mountain, to this beautiful place in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be shedding sin. We're to be enduring. But we find the strength for all of that by having our eyes fixed on him. And when we do, our faces will be radiant, even in the midst of our sorrows, our troubles, our struggles, our challenges, if our eyes are fixed on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these things are simply stated, but Lord, uh, they are impossible to us. We don't have the strength to shed sin But we are, Lord, to come to you for the grace and the strength to do that. You have 
overcome sin in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we've come to this mountain where we have found this grace and this mercy, where we found this steadfast love, and we are to put ourselves into your hands and look for the covenant promises and blessings that belong to us coming to that mountain. Lord, we don't have in ourselves the faith to endure, but we will find that enduring faith in you through Christ. And Lord, our eyes do get moved off of our Savior. But Lord, you are the one who can fix them on him. And we pray that you will do that for us. Lord, these things are ours through Christ Jesus. We have come to you through the cross. We pray, Lord, that you will fix us on our Savior. Strengthen us to every good work. Let us, Lord, serve one another and serve you with joy. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has, is dwelling at Mount Sinai, may they see there's no hope there. Give them the grace to look past Mount Sinai and to hear the message of the cross and the promise of Zion through the Lord Jesus Christ. And let them find relief and peace and the strength to overcome. Grant it, Lord, by your great grace, by your steadfast love. And Lord, may we rejoice as your people that we today stand in the presence not only of just souls uh, made perfect through the Lord Jesus Christ, but festal angels on the city, in the city of God. And Lord, may our joy be full as we fix our eyes on Emmanuel, who is the everything of our heavenly hopes. Hear us, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen.